The following resource is presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. Welcome to A Counselor's Point of View. Hi, my name is Steve Finney, and I will be your host. We want to welcome our online listeners uh, to our podcast today and to our message. We certainly welcome our local listeners. Uh, We are being uh, blessed with a new piece of technology. For those of you who are used to going to our library and clicking on our messages, starting today uh, and all of our messages forward, you can actually activate uh, our message within the PDF file. It's a uh, piece of technology that is going to help ministries all over the world because we can send these PDF files individually and not have to send people to the podcast. So supposedly, as I was told, it will literally uh, increase our listening audience, and so that's what we're hoping and praying is going to happen here. So those of you who are listening, just keep that in mind, that you can download those PDFs. You literally can forward those PDFs to friends and people all over the world. We are going through a series right now called Identity for uh, Eternity with the subtitle of Terms of Endearment. This is number 74 for those of you who are going by the numbers in our library. It is a mini-series that we are doing devoted to defining, explaining, and practically making use of the biblical terms given to us by the Lord. Terms of endearment. I'd like to have Ian come share with us John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And please feel free to stand as the Word of God is read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness to the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but came to bear true witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He came after, he, he comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's take a look at our opening paragraph in our message today, Withholding Love. Rejection is withholding love from yourself, from others, from God. Now, how can you withhold love from yourself? So really, withholding God from yourself, withholding a dynamic relationship, 
Whenever you see the word love, you should be thinking of God, the identity of God. So it's rejection is withholding God from self, others, or even himself, giving God glory, giving God back unto himself. There are two types of rejection, overt and covert. The worst kind of rejection is to be stabbed with love. I'm doing this because I love you. Really? Hide the knives. Because that's not love. It's lighting a knife in your back. That's covert. That turns overt very quickly. Overt rejection is obvious known rejection. For example, I hate you. Covert rejection is subtle or unknown rejection. For example, smiling on the outside while judging on the inside. Both of these forms of rejection are consequences of trying to be God, which is Godship. Either by self or from others. Without question, we believe the rejection leads to individuals attempting to find life externally instead of internally. Now here's the real dilemma. And listeners, please listen to this very carefully because if this is a serious challenge to you, I'll put a little ad in at this moment. If you go back to the website and mouse over on the online school, you'll see a drop-down menu, and on there it'll say Identity Matters Conference. And on that page, you're going to find the video vignettes, the audio messages, and a place where you can order the workbook that goes with it. And you'll get a thorough explanation of the entire identity of Christ. Very, very important. Finding life externally becomes our biggest challenge because many people say that they're born again. But they don't use the term born again. They use the term Christian. I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian all my life. Or I'm a Christian because I went forward in Bible camp. I'm a Christian because of whatever. You just need to understand that that does not necessarily mean you're an indwelt Christian. Do you know how many millions of people through the centuries who have made a guilt plea before God in prayer because they don't want to go to hell? There was a hellfire damnation phase that the church went through that came out of the Reformation period where the preachers tend to make the people feel guilty. And then they would pray a prayer. And then they would get their ticket in their back pocket. And they would go on with their lives and live externally. But every once in a while, you see someone come out of that confession with a changed life. That's the evidence of a true conversion. But see, we can't judge it. I can't judge whether someone who sits in front of me and says, I had a born-again experience on such and such a day, and then God comes around and says, I test whom I love and puts them through a test of endurance, and they don't survive it, I, I can't judge that. We have to release God to show them, are they trying to find life externally because they are indwelt and they're focusing on old identity, or have they not even been saved yet? If you think that God's going to take your feelings into consideration, 
because you don't he doesn't want you to feel bad for him to step up and say, "Oh, by the way, your salvation was fake." That is the world we're living in today is that the entire world is going with an emergent gospel that no one wants to be strong enough to say the truth. Well, I'm not going to be one of those. I am going to put forth a question whenever God leads me to for them to go before God to make sure they are saved. It doesn't matter who you are or what you're doing. What really matters is, are you trying to live life externally, either because you're unsaved or you're indwelled by Christ and still trying to function like the unbelievers? Here's some questions we need to take a look at today. Who is the real Christ? But here's the deal about the real Christ. When you think of answering this question or maybe the second question you're seeing on the list of what's this what's the deal with this antichrist most people think of this scary action figure who looks demonic whatever that looks like and looks very dark and evil and you know this picture that has been painted to the world of the dark world if you guys only knew the most dangerous Christ there is, how beautiful he looks. We have pictures of him on the wall that make him look like a model from Hollywood. In fact, usually in, in the movies they make of him, they, they, they pick a Hollywood, beautiful, perfect-looking male. When the scriptures say he was very unbecoming in appearance. For you young listeners, that's called ugly. He was difficult to look at. He was so ugly. Hmm. You see, but there's this Christ that's being presented in churches all over the world that is not our Christ. He is not. To try to list them out is an impossible task. So we got to talk about how do we determine the real Jesus Christ? Pretty critical. So what is the difference between Christ's life and Christ's life? Huge difference. We'll talk about that. Co uh, what is uh, co-death, burial, and resurrection? We got to be addressing that. What is the real purpose of communion? What is the sincere conscience that is uh, spoken of in 1 John? And what is a conscience versus a subconscience? And then finally, what is the difference between cross of man and the cross of Jesus Christ? The interesting thing about the concept of an antichrist now this, to a lot of listeners, is going to be, duh. But to many of our listeners, it's going to be a brand new piece of understanding. You can be assured that any Christ that is presented 
is not going to support the fact that he is the Son of God. The Son of God died on the cross. And before he died on the cross, he became sin on our behalf. And that sin was taken into the, the tomb. And then he descended to the lower parts of the earth. That's called hell. He paid the price for three days. That's called living it out in hell for three days. It took three days to completely cover the cost of your sins. Then he comes back to the tomb. The stone is rolled away and he comes out of that tomb. He walks the earth for 40 days, literally showing people the, the, the nail prints in his, in, his, in his wrists and the piercing of his side and in his feet and proves to the world by literally, as history tells us, goes to every single community he preached in, he went to every one of those villages again just to show the people that he's real the story was real the prophecies were real you see all these other Christs they don't believe that there's some churches that still leave him on a cross and put crucifix on the wall and have you get on your knees and look to a cross and pray to a cross and pray to dead saints Tons. There's some that believe that Jesus existed, but they don't believe he died on the cross. See, this is what differentiates between the real Christ and the false Christ. So these do need to be addressed. Let's take a look at our first one. Christ, real and anti-Christ. The Hebrew root for Christ is Messias, which is also where the Greek gets the word Messiah. Messiah is one of the ultimate words in any language anywhere in the world. It pretty much says the king of kings, the leader of leaders. There's no one higher than a Messiah. So to have a false Messiah, who can argue with that? It's like someone saying to you, God told me. And then they do something very unrighteously. Well, how can you argue with that? When they use God's name like it's a signature on a check. And the enemy knows this, and this is how he functions within the church and around the church, is to have people using God's name in vain. And most people think that's a swear word, like GD. Using God's name is vain, is using his name outside of the scriptures. That's in a vein outside of the scriptures. Biggest habit for the church today. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Rather, it is a statement of position, power, and privilege. Jesus Christ is the total deity, God's position, God position within the Trinity as the Father's Son. So here's what we have. We have perfect family. I've been a family systems man since college years. I believe understanding 
a system and then how that system fits into God's system is how I determine whether something is wrong. So when I think of God's system, here's the first family system being presented to us. You have God the Father, you have God the Son, and you have God the Holy Spirit. You say, why are God the Son and God the Holy Spirit on the, on the same playing field and you have God the Father up here? The Father can never be superseded. The Father is the highest of the highest. Okay? That's Hebrew. There's, there's no one greater than a Father. So then the Son becomes a representative of the Father. And you have the Holy Spirit here. And what happens when a true salvation occurs, a true conversion occurs, a true born-again experience occurs? Indwells a person. So now we have a brand new title. And what is that? For we are the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. Now if you need to do a little pictorial on your little notepad, draw God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit as a Trinity model. And then put a little uh, a stick figure underneath the circle of the Holy Spirit with a little dress on with, with hands and feet and you have the bride of Christ. We are literally grafted into the very fibers of the first family of God. You try to convince me that that's not significant. We are put in Christ. Christ is put in us and we as his bride being in him, he is hidden in God and put at the right hand of his father. I'd like to see the devil get there. But we walk around thinking that the devil can get at us 24 hours a day. He can our flesh, but he cannot our spirit. This is huge. Because the Antichrist has got to work all those details in such a way that he comes up with a Trinity model. And he did. Someone please tell me what the Trinity model is of the Antichrist. We have Satan himself, who claims to be the father of the earth. We have the beast. We have the false prophet. You see, he replicates everything of God. He's not a creator. He doesn't invent anything. So he is going to try to throw everyone off by saying Jesus is truly not the son of God and is not God, and so forth and so on. But yet he's going to turn around and present the same model and say, but I am. That's how deception works. He is convinced by the Holy Spirit, by the direct orders of God, and born of the Virgin Mary. This is Jesus, the real Jesus Christ we're talking about. He is both true God and true man, as Scripture clearly shows us. The true Christ versus the Antichrist, which is plural, there is such a huge difference between the two. There's so much space in between the two that most people get tired trying to figure it out. So they go with the flow or whatever the church says is normal, natural, and neutral. Pretty soon we're going to have homosexual pastors. We already do. Pretty soon we're going to have 
You see what I mean? The leadership of the church is going to look very stupid. I was trying to find a nicer word. I have a gay pastor that's following us, and I'm trying to be a little more sensitive and not offending her. But uh, it is hard to address without offending some people because it is sinful. She's not necessarily the person to pick on. It's the deception that sucked her in. You see what I mean? I would like to see you, as one of our listeners, be redeemed and truly get saved and be delivered from this lifestyle that is a replica of Satan. Satan's partially male, he's partially female, just like the image that is presented to us in history. We have the tendency to think people or beings in the spirit world are like us. They're not. Let's take a look at our next word or words. Christ's life versus Christ as life. James chapter 4 verse 5 says, Or do you not think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? For God jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell within us. So the, the whole thing is not about you. So listeners, listen very carefully. Most people listen to sermons, read books, go through workbooks, go through conferences because they want to grow themselves. And if you want to know how clear God's doctrines are in regard to you, you're probably going to get insulted. Because it isn't about you. It's about the glory of God. It's about everything is to bring more and more glory unto the Father. Jesus himself brings the glory to the Father. The Holy Spirit brings the glory to Jesus. Jesus takes that glory and brings it to the Father. Yes, God does care about you and that you come into an intimate relationship with Jesus, but he is not interested in presenting to you a selfish gospel. The life of Christ Jesus while on the earth was in the form of man. He emptied himself out as being equal to God, Philippians 2.6. After his resurrection and then ascension, he gave to all those who accepted him as Lord and Savior a very, very special gift. And that was his life. You see, what breathes life into something is spirit. When, when God reached down in the garden, he picked up a fistful of red dirt. Which is what Adam means. Red dirt. And he had a fistful of red dirt. And he breathed life into it. The very breath that came out of the Father's mouth was the Spirit of God. And he breathed life into that pile of red dirt and man was formed, created. That's how simple it is. Now Satan wanted to complicate it and turn it into science. And that's how evolution was born and other weird theories. Man was not created by 
God's breath breathing into some dirt and then it creates this man. And even worse, that woman was formed. She was not created. Hebrew word says she was formed. And he puts Adam asleep, cuts open his side, takes a rib out, snaps a rib off, and forms Eve from his side. That's just, that's just absolutely ridiculous. So when evolution came along, long before Darwin, by the way, the ancients were fighting over this long before there was a first university. Is that man evolves from what is already in existence. Or man evolves from nothingness which is kind of a ridiculous idea. Or just maybe a particle. So then all the scriptures that are mentioned about Galatians 6.3, he who thinks he's something when he's nothing deceives himself. You see, all these scriptures that talk about nothingness and, and whatever become an opportunity for Satan to confuse the people. Life itself is breath. And when you become born again, the Holy Spirit, the very breath of God, the life of God, is breathed into you and reconnects you back to the tree of life. That's how simple the gospel is. Either you had the breath of God breathed in you, or you did not. You don't grow into Christianity. You don't have Christianity through sacraments. And those of you who have uh, mentioned a few things to me this past couple weeks about infant baptism, because we've kind of been talking about that under the bees, it's just because you were baptized as a child does not mean you're going to get to heaven. It's not an external thing that happens to you in salvation. It is an internal through the breath of God. 602-292-2982, please, if you question your salvation and you want someone to dialogue with about it, please feel free uh, to contact us. When we read about the life of Christ living within us, Galatians 2.20, be assured it is his actual life, which is, which is eternal life, not external life, it's eternal life. Now, whether our minds wrap itself around the simple fact that it is Christ's life who is actually doing the manifesting in us and lives inside of us is probably our greatest challenge. If Jesus was standing in front of you, now go out in your mind and pick your worst sin. Would you commit that sin? Someone going to hell wouldn't commit the sin. His presence would be so overwhelming, you would have to be an absolute hater of God to be able to commit a sin in the presence of Jesus. And he lives inside of us, and we still choose to sin. That is evidence we're not in touch with the truth of what we're reading about. All of us struggle with this.
The term Christ as life is used to explain believers walking after, not in, after the Spirit. Now that's where the confusion comes in. There are those who choose by belief system to walk after the Spirit, but actually they're in the flesh. In is an identity statement. So really the way this needs to read is if we are indwelt by the living God, it is after and in. We are in Christ Jesus and we do walk after the Spirit. And the scriptures do speak in those terms, which is why we need to. And this is done by allowing the life of Christ to do the walking in and through us as believers. We're a vessel. I hate to say it, but we're garden hoses. I was out trying to screw on the garden hose out there to wash these trees over the weekend. I just couldn't get it to screw on. And I'm like, I can't get any water. And I just looked at this hose and I went, that's like my life. You see, we are connected to Christ. And many times we reach over and we turn off that flow. And the way we turn off that flow is identified into all believers is through rebellion. By choosing to walk after the flesh. Dry hose. There's no life coming through it. We're vessels. We can be dry or we can let the flow happen. But we are connected for eternity. Crucifixion versus co-crucifixion. Starting next week, we're going to do two weeks of the cross. So I'm going to save a lot of the detailed um, description under crucifixion and co-crucifixion on the cross for the next two messages. But crucifixion is the form of death thrown upon Jesus in his appointed time of death. It is described as nailing a person's hands, feet to the cross and allowing the natural process occur to produce death, such as suffocation. Now, Job suffered in suffocation. Suffocation is known as the worst form of, of death. You would think hanging there on the cross and bleeding out and all of the, the, the stripes that he had to endure, and you would think that would really be the toughest part of dying. Suffocation is the worst. You see, having a machete come at you is easier to deal with than a slow death of suffocation, of someone pulling away from you, or someone using covert rejection or someone whatever. You see, that you can't, you can't deal with it because you're not quite sure what they're doing to you. It's a slow death. When they took the hammer and they busted the knees on someone hanging on the cross, the purpose was they have no more stability because they would push themselves up on the cross in order to breathe. Life. You see, it's about this breathing in life. 
And then when the knees are broken, there's no way to support <coughs> themselves to get that air into their lungs. And they die of suffocation. That's how Jesus died. The grief led him to this moment of suffocation by sin because they didn't break his knees. They didn't break any bone in his body. But what they did do is cast all their sin on him. Then he had to become sin on our behalf. And that sin suffocated him. It, it took all the air, life, breath, spirit to this point of, Father, I commend my spirit. spirit. I commend my life, my breath, back to you. That was the moment when Satan realized, as stupid as he is, because sin does make us stupid, that's when he realized this guy was telling the truth. Something happened in the temple that day. Do you remember? The veil was torn. A lot of people view the veil as some protection for God. It doesn't need protection. You know what that veil was for? To veil the face of Jesus. Or to take it one step further is to veil the face of his bride. You see, the holy of holy rooms in the high priest room, Jesus and the Father, and then there's this veil in between. So if we literally translate that out, when that, when that veil was torn by the Father, and that veil is to cover, it's what separated Jesus from the Father, and no one got to see the Father before Jesus. Do you realize that? The reason why that the Catholics have this purgatory thing going that they've never let go is simply because of the fact of that scripture. Knowing got to see the Father before Jesus. So they're in a holding tank. Well, whether you call it purgatory or whether you call it paradise or whatever it is you want to call it, they were kept away from the face of the Father until Jesus got to see the Father first. And the ripping of that veil is what provided even Jesus the privilege of seeing the face of his father. But there's something that happened to Jesus with his relationship with his father shortly before he took that last breath. And what was that? Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken literally translates out, turn your face from me. You see, God has never seen sin. Do you understand that? He's always been protected from sin, even in heaven, before Satan got to step out, before that foot was going to touch the next step in his life to bring sin into heaven, he was removed from heaven like a bolt of lightning. Sin's never been in heaven. Sin's never been in the presence of God. And when God spoke to the Old Testament people, he sent angels to represent him. That's why we do have Angels. They are a layer between the living God 
and these sinful people. And then Jesus became this redeeming factor, truth, life, that reconnected us back to the face of the Father. Now, if that doesn't mess with you a little bit, you need to go to your prayer closet. Because that is such an incredible miracle that when that veil got torn, Jesus was able to see his Father. And then he went and paid the penalty for this rebellious bride-to-be, came out of the tomb, showed everyone his markings for 40 days, and then he ascends. And then the Holy Spirit descends on that powerful day of Pentecost and then literally fills the believer. Now we get to see the face of God. You see, there's no veil over our face. It's been torn. It's been removed. But see, I have no memories of actually looking in the face of the Father. But will I? Absolutely. So the world, there is still kind of a veil. The bride is walking around with a veil. And before we have that wedding feast, that veil will be, because that's through our second death, that, that coming from this earthly world and entering into an eternal world, that veil is removed. And that's what messed with the minds of the leaders of the synagogue, is the torn veil. That was the no-no of all no-nos. I'm also of the belief, and if there's historians out there that are listening has different proof in the pudding, I really would like to hear from you because I am openly curious as to a dialogue in this area, but I particularly believe that when the veil was torn and the earthquake, the earth was shaking, that the um, Ark of the Covenant fell through the, the core, to the core of the earth or through the earthquake. Because if it was still around somewhere, people would compulsively go to the Ark to get the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant literally became the symbol of people experiencing the presence of God externally. And the whole system was set up for people to get in as close as they could to the Ark of the Covenant, which was separated by a veil, a very thick veil. And to have that veil torn in the Ark of the Covenant possibly falling into the earth and it isn't being hidden someplace in a cave. There's no purpose of bringing it back. God doesn't go backwards. Who becomes that gold box? Someone please tell me. Holy Spirit is the stuff in the box. Jesus is not the box. There you got it. That is the identity statement of the New Testament. 
Do you not know that your body is the temple, the ark of the covenant of the Holy Spirit? And that's why the concept of praying to stuff on the walls or buildings or whatever the case may be, I've heard of stranger things, is such an insult to God. Because he's living, he went through all of that trouble to put his son inside our mortal bodies. That statement that was just quoted from the scriptures is the point of reference of the exchanged life, the living life of Jesus Christ, Christ as life, the co-crucified life, abundant life, union life, whatever it is you want to call it. There are churches calling it different things all over the world, but basically we're all saying the same thing. Listeners, listen carefully. It is the indwelling life of Jesus Christ living inside your mortal body. And this is the piece of truth that separates the goats from the sheep. So all of this work of this of the temple and the veil and the all of this work is for this pivotal point. Do you or do you not believe that you are the temple for the Holy Spirit? It is described, where are we at here? Romans 6, 6 reveals a very powerful reality of freedom, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, Jesus in order that the body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Someone reread that for me, but this time where you see sin, put the term old identity. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of old identity might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to our old identity. For he who has died, who has died, is freed from their old identity. Now, in the future when you are studying your Bible, and you've come across the word sin, just say old identity. You see, what sends you to hell is when you get pulled over by the cop, and he says, uh, may I please see your... So, you know, you reach in and you give the driver's license and you get the ownership papers. This doesn't say who owns. It's the other papers that say who owns. But can you imagine you get pulled over by Satan? He says, let me see your identity. No, well, sure. Take it out. And it's a picture of Jesus Christ. My name belongs to the kingdom of God and there's his address and and all the data is there directly identifies to Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the only thing that's going to get Satan off your back. But if you claim any other kind of identity, he is going to mess with you. Identity is everything. It's absolutely everything. And that's what we are being shown in Romans chapter 6 is the identity of the old versus the identity of the new. 
course, when Galatians 2.20 says, For I have been crucified with Christ. I don't remember being there. Do you? So what in the world got crucified? The old nature, the old man, sinful nature, and the Adamic nature. It's been called different things through different translations, but it basically is the person being an identity that sends you to hell. You pull out your driver's license and have your own picture and identity on it, you're going to hell. But you pull out that driver's license and it's got the very identity and life of Jesus Christ on it, whoever it is that's going to drag you off to court is going to deal with him. Do you see the difference? If you don't, you probably need to get with someone to chat about the difference. Your identity has got to be when you pull it out, Jesus Christ and him crucified. But that's a great mystery that people just don't get. So they're going to think you're lying. Both passages reveal the fact that those of us who have the indwelling life of Christ within us experience the believer's co-crucifixion. What got crucified? It's the old man nature, the Adamic nature, or old self. Co-death, burial, and resurrection is like-minded, so it's the reality of the true salvation that actually states this, that the believer has been baptized into Jesus, has an actual sharing in his death, burial, and resurrection. This is the truth that takes the spirit of life within the believer to understand and embrace. This is too difficult for a human to understand. If you didn't get what we just said, you need to pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to reveal it to you because man cannot explain this. The Spirit has to do it for us. People who are not born again have no ability to understand the mystery of co-death, burial, and resurrection as they are spiritually appraised, discerned. Spiritually appraised, as one of my theologian friends used word picture in explaining appraised to me, and that is like putting a stamp on you. You get marked. And this is communicating that there are people who are marked by the beast. And they're never going to get it, ever, till the Spirit decides, I'm going to show you. Then you get marked again with the numeric value of God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. See, it all comes down to being marked. What's on your card? What's in your wallet? God himself has this in his system. If you're going to hell, you're marked. If you're going to heaven, you're marked. Identity. Mark. Identity. It's the same root word. Very significant. Communion. This term is used to define the unity and the unblocked fellowship with the life of Christ from within. The word comes from commune or oneness, which is operative for any believer who walks after the Spirit and not after the flesh. If you're in the flesh, you will walk after the flesh. If you're in the Spirit, you will walk after the Spirit. You walk after what you're in. 
And if you happen to walk after something you're not in, you're being lied to. Satan's good at that one. Conscience. A conscience is the part of the mind that enables a person to discern the difference between right and wrong. It is either seared by the Adamic nature, the unregenerate spirit of any unsaved person, or once saved, it is generated, resupplied by the indwelling life of Christ. Does an unbeliever, someone who's going to hell, know the difference between right and wrong? Sounds like a trick question, doesn't it? But see, an unbeliever can actually stand at the tree of knowledge and go, hmm, I see evil and I see good. And still go to hell. In fact, some can even get on their knees and worship that tree. Some can even get on their knees and worship the good side of that tree. The Pharisees were going to hell in a handbasket. In fact, the Pharisees were marked by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as a brood, a whole nest of snakes. And they thought they were the righteous ones? They were bowing and worshiping the good side of the tree of knowledge, which is where Satan lived. You know what the end times is all about? Is taking the bad side of the tree of knowledge and the good side of the tree of knowledge and each century the tree is blending the two of those. And finally, that final hour, someone could stand before the tree of knowledge and what was once What's Revelation say? What's, what was once wrong is right. What is once right is wrong. There's a blending of the two where that the unsaved people themselves or even saved people can't differ, differentiate between the two. It's called the emergent church. It's a big movement if you haven't noticed. It's grown faster in five years than anything that has ever been approached upon by the enemy in the complete history of church history. It's sweeping your communities right now. It's sweeping your nation right now. It is sweeping your politics right now. People do not know the difference and cannot define what is evil or what is good any longer. It's called a seared conscience. Subconscious, the term conscious is part of the human brain that is awake, aware, intentional, informed, and conducts active thinking. The term subconscious, put a dash between S-U-B, is a modern word used to define the memories filled, filed away, by the mind as we sleep at night or are purposely and or in intentionally forgotten. So Tina, what did you have for breakfast when you were five years old? The first day of kindergarten. Probably Lucky Charm. 
You see, the big question is, is that data inside Tina's mind? Of course it is. Back in my rebellious days, I used to be a part of hypnotic therapy. We'd put people under, and you wouldn't believe what we could get out of their brains. Stuff they would remember that there's no reason to remember when they're awake. It's in there. But see, it's fruitless information. Well, unless it's Fruit Loops. <laughs> then it kind of stays with you, but it really is, there's no purpose to keep it in your conscious mind. So it's like a filing cabinet, a two-drawer filing cabinet, subconscious, conscious. When you fall asleep at night, you actually have both drawers open. So you start to dream about really weird stuff, about being chased by Fruit Loops that have got little legs and they get little dagger, wheat dagger. Yeah. Just weird stuff. Because both drawers are open. The files are mixing. The mind is designed in such a way that whatever you take in during the day, it needs nighttime to file it away. That's how we're made. And that's where we get the concept of conscious, top drawer, subconscious, bottom drawer. The brain is designed by God to hold only a certain amount of data while awakening. Have you ever heard the term mental breakdown? I got too much in here. I think about too much. So what do they do? They give you medicine to block the the uh, message from getting from one nerve ending to the nether nerve ending. And that synapse, that's, that gel, that cushion that's in between those nerve endings, we've discovered we get to play around with. We can stimulate it through a cup of coffee, or we can retard it by putting some type of drug in there that when that nerve starts to send that message, it hits that gel back. Down. They can strengthen the chemical in that gel pack to such a degree you never get the message. In fact, they can strengthen that gel pack in such a way that you have no recall of memory anymore. What used to be popular in electroshock therapy, they now do through medicine. They don't need to hook you up to the, the outlets in the room. They just do it through medication. Pharmacia, which I reread your article, Tina, this week. And uh, it's very refreshing. I probably should just make a copy and give it to the body. But the whole study of medicine and pharmacia and what the original was versus what the Greeks did to it and and pharmacia means what, Tina? Sorcery. Sorcery. So this is a world the enemy has played with. A lot. Conscious versus subconscious data. The cross, and we'll pick up on this next week to give you more details, but the cross is one of the most common words that we use as Indoel Christians or not. And classically has two common references. 
First, it is the word used to define a form of death Jesus experienced. And I'll give you a little heads up. There's three primarily kinds of crosses that the Romans would use, and the Phoenicians would use, and the Egyptians would use. One is an X, which is the symbol the Knight Templars adopted. They were known throughout Egypt of crucifying through the X. And they basically pin each one of your appendages down on this X and have all kinds of fun with you. The next was the, the T, and that is there was no top to the cross like the small T, but a capital T was just this T piece of wood and you know, they would crucify, crucify you on that. And then the third type was the Y effect, which is what got adopted through the Catholic Church, is where we get our modern symbol today of the cross. So we're going to talk about that a little bit more and what history has uh, been accustomed to of using the cross for torture. But you need to understand something. I'll give you a heads up. There's a Hebrew letter in the Hebrew alphabet that means Torah. And it's the symbol of the, the cross, as the Westerns view it. Interesting historical data, but we'll talk more about it. First, the word is used to define the form of death Jesus experienced. Secondly, it is used to define the indwell believer's description of their co-crucifixion with Christ and all the eternal benefits of understanding their identification with Christ, their driver's license with Christ in his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension and their walk with Jesus. This truth makes way for each indwell believer to share in the experience of the cross and actually to have their own cross to bear themselves. This is a very interesting principle when we look at the cross is the finished work of Jesus, but he's the one that turned around and said, you pick up your own. We need to talk about that. What does that look like to bear your own cross? When Christ said it was a finished work. Another area of confusion in Christianity. Here's our identity matter statement for today. Knowing the difference, the definition of terms opens the door to a deeper understanding for the appropriation of the indwelling life of Christ. It is in resting in Jesus that what he says to be true about us that grants us the understanding, the terms he uses to define in daily experiences. Now keep this in mind. When we are being addressed before the Father, when the Holy Spirit is addressing us before Jesus, remember the Holy Spirit utters things we can't. I oftentimes wonder, how is the Holy Spirit describing me to Jesus? What words is he using? Now I know that I'm probably not going to get the answer here. But that's curious to me. How does the Holy Spirit talk about me? Well, I think these identity terms is helping us get a glimpse 
of how the Holy Spirit speaks of us before Jesus. Whenever you speak through the knowledge and the terminology of the Holy, a new power will flow from you, a power that will reveal the indwelling life of Jesus Christ. This resource has been presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. For more information about our ministries, visit us online at IOMAmerica.org. That's IOMAmerica.org.